0: Please be seated and turn with me to Isaiah 59, verse 14. Isaiah 59, 14. I think it'd be fair to say that over the last few weeks, uh, we have spent a lot of time with the people of Judah in dire straits. That's generally true, of course, through the course of the whole book of Isaiah, The most immediate context into which Isaiah is prophesying is the people of Judah leading up to and in and after the exile in Babylon. They're a pretty small, helpless people, and they're surrounded by these great empires that seem to be controlling the world. At one point, it seemed like God was keeping these wonderful, fantastic promises to his people, uh, but now compared to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, uh, those promises seem to them as though they might be in doubt. They wonder whether or not uh, God has any good for them. They feel threatened and insignificant. And yet, Isaiah has reminded us again and again that Judah's failure is not primarily a political or economic or social question, but a spiritual one. So let's look at uh, the first few verses of our passage this morning. Isaiah 59 verse 14. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Stop there. Do not read further. Spoilers. These verses summarize pretty well the state of Judah that we have seen over the last few weeks. We've heard about selfish leaders exploiting the people. We've heard about rampant lust, and idolatry, and greed, and oppression of the poor. We've heard about hollow hypocritical worship going as far as killing their own children. Isaiah says that in Judah, justice and righteousness have essentially become enemies of the state. They've been forcibly banished. They stand far off. They're barred from entry. Jerusalem has become a stronghold against righteousness, as though they were defending themselves from a foreign invader. This means that inside the city, wickedness no longer hides in secret places. It's openly displayed. It's in the courts. It's in the public square. There is no room for truth. And Isaiah says, anyone who wants to do anything other than evil makes themselves a prey. They are suspected of allying themselves with that justice and righteousness that are now deemed the enemies of Jerusalem. Isaiah gives us a poetic picture of God's response to their sin, saying that God went to look at Jerusalem and was displeased. He was struck over how rotten Jerusalem had become. God is appalled. By how completely justice has been purged from society. He wonders at it, which is not to say he thinks about it, but that he marvels at it. Isaiah doesn't mean to make us think that God is surprised by what is happening in Jerusalem. Isaiah has already spoken at length about God's sovereignty, even over sin. What this poetic scene is meant to convey is how much our sin offends God. Isaiah paints God's response in human terms so we can better understand not only how sin offends him, but how it should have offended us. God's response to sin exposes how little the people in the city cared about their sin. Calvin says when Isaiah says the Lord wonders, he means that we are excessively dull and stupid because we neither perceive nor care for the evils of our condition. In particular, God marvels that he cannot find a single person to intercede for Judah. To intercede is to go between two parties. We normally think about it in the context of prayer. Now, Alec Mateer says here that the word has a little bit more scope. God is looking to see if there's anyone who can not just advocate for his people, but intervene in their terrible state, stand between them and the seemingly inevitable consequences of their moral collapse. Judah seems doomed. The only question is whether she'll ultimately be ruined by foreign oppressors or by her own deprivation. And it sadly makes sense that at such a terrible hour as this. Judah has failed to produce even one person with the faith in God to redeem her. At this point, There should be nothing left for Isaiah but to prophesy destruction and exile and punishment for sin. We've seen similar warnings throughout Isaiah already, haven't we? That is a just response to this horrible deprivation in Judah. God's response to sin, when he's shocked and appalled, seems to warrant such an action. But last week, we saw that one of Isaiah's main purposes in exposing this sin is not simply so that the people would be scolded, but so that some of them might repent And at the end of our passage last week, Isaiah leads them in cries of repentance. Now jump backwards to verses 12 and 13. For our transgressions, now they're speaking as a people, our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. They see their sin. It testifies against them. They see that it comes from their hearts. They see that this is the reason there is separation between them and God. They also see that their sin has seemingly pushed his salvation far from them because of their own actions. They appear to be without a hope. Jump back one verse further. Verse 11. We all growl like bears and we moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. We hope for salvation, but it is far from us. Our passage this morning is God's response to the moans and cries of his people. Those who have recognized their sin, those who have repented, despaired, and wondered whether there could still be any hope when salvation seems far from them. In response God does not offer more warnings, but enormous eternal promises. Yet this people, yes, this people has no power, no power to save themselves, no ability to produce an intercessor. So God is going to have to save them himself. God will provide the conquering hero to rescue them. Let's go back to verse 14 and read to the end of the chapter. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. And those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. It's the word of the Lord. God responds to Judah's failure to produce any righteousness of their own by acting out of his own righteousness. Righteousness. He responds to their inability to produce even one qualified intercessor by coming to stand for them himself. God is not coming because they are worthy of it. In fact, he's coming because they aren't. He's coming because he has made promises to them, because he has bound his name to them. He has staked his righteousness on defending their cause and exerting his power to bring salvation to them even though it seemed far from them but how will god come himself as an intercessor to save his people this is all the more confusing because the rest of the song speaks of the savior as a human who relates to the lord so is this intercessor a man or is this intercessor god kids is he man or is he god He's both, isn't he? Isaiah is looking forward to Jesus who would be truly God and truly man, conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Surprise, this is an Advent sermon. Jesus alone is able to be the perfect intercessor, the one who can bring about God's salvation while truly standing as the representative of human people. That makes him the perfect intercessor, the only one who can truly intervene to save God's people from the disaster that they had brought upon themselves. So that is our first point this morning. When God can find no intercessor in Zion, he sends Jesus. Isaiah gives God's people these wonderful assurances that God is sending a hero to save them. And he's got all of God's strength and all of God's righteousness. And then Isaiah shows us this hero getting ready for war. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Kids, when you read this verse, what does it make you think of? Is there another passage? the armor of God in Ephesians 6. We will get there, but not yet. First, let's look at what's happening in Isaiah. We could almost say that this scene is cinematic. Have you ever, think about this, have you ever seen a good getting ready for battle scene? Not a good battle scene, not yet. A good getting ready for battle scene. You know that scene in the movies, right? The good guys seem hopeless. They seem incredibly outnumbered. The enemy seems so much stronger. There seems like no way that they're going to win the battle. And you have no idea what's going to happen. And then there's this montage where the hero comes forward. And the hero starts putting on his armor. He suits up. He lowers his helmet over his head. And he picks up his sword. And he looks resolved. And he looks confident. And suddenly you start feeling a little bit differently about the fight. is coming up. Not only does it seem like the good guys might actually have a chance, but you start to feel bad for the enemies of this hero who have to go up against somebody who is as ready as this. Who wants to fight that guy? That is how Isaiah wants us to feel as we watch the conqueror getting dressed to save God's people. This imagery of armor doesn't tell us that Jesus needs protection. It's meant to show us what Jesus is equipped with for his task. Unlike physical armor, these are qualities that Jesus is equipped with in and of himself. This is a poetic device we've actually already seen in Isaiah, where to be wrapped in something or clothed in something is to talk about what is a part of you, what you have all in and of yourself that can't be removed. The first and last items of Jesus' armor are qualities, and the middle two are actions. He wears righteousness as a breastplate. That's his emblem. That's his crest. That's what represents him as he's going into battle, the righteousness of God. And then he is wrapped up in zeal. And these two go together because Jesus' zeal arises out of his righteousness and is for God's righteousness. Zeal is unwavering passion for a cause or an objective to the point where you would give anything to see it through. Jesus is zealous for all of the things that God's people have become apathetic about. God's righteousness, his justice, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. They threw up their hands, you'll remember, and said, it's hopeless. It's hopeless to flee from sin. It is hopeless to pursue righteousness. But it would be utterly hopeless to try and cause Jesus to sin or to do anything to deter him from his mission from his father. The devil tried. The devil tried and tried and tried. The devil tried a lot. But Jesus pursued his father's will even unto death. Now in between these qualities, we see that Jesus wears the helmet of salvation and has put on garments of vengeance. And again, these two go together. Jesus' zeal for God's will and his perfect righteousness fill him with this righteous desire to see sin punished, even to bring it about, so his vengeance is wrapped around him. It surrounds him. He will bring God's judgment against all sin. This vengeance should not be what really surprises us. What is perhaps more surprising is that along with it, he will bring salvation, and this is his helmet This is what you see of him when he first rides into battle. The one with the power and the authority to bring destruction announces himself on the battlefield as the hope of salvation for God's people. Isaiah has built up anticipation. The conqueror is prepared. He is equipped. He is ready. And then we actually see him go forth to conquer. First, we see the power of his vengeance verse 18, according to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. The vengeance of the Messiah in battle is perfect. It is exacting. It is He carries out his offensive until he reaches the coastlands, suggesting that he has covered the whole land. From the west to the rising of the sun, there is not a single sin that has been left unpaid. Every adversary receives his due wrath. Every enemy is paid back for his crimes. This is Christ the conqueror. So our second point this morning is this. Jesus the conqueror brings vengeance we see that this conquering is filled with the power of creator God. This means that all of the power of the most terrifying forces of nature are with Christ as he comes like a rushing river or a gale driven by God. How big an army do you need to stop a hurricane? A thousand soldiers? Ten thousand? It doesn't matter, does it? It's impossible. There will be no stopping him, and there will be no escape from him. There is nothing more terrifying that you can imagine than to be an enemy of Jesus. Paul explains to the Thessalonians this vengeance in more straightforward didactic language. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. We heard from Luke, John's explicit expression of how this conquering will look. Jesus himself was very clear about this important aspect of his ministry. Matthew 24. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We might prefer to talk about Jesus as Savior than to talk about Him as the bringer of vengeance. But Isaiah shows us in our passage this morning that these two roles are inseparable. The day of vengeance is the day of salvation. Jesus says the day he punishes the wicked is the day he gathers the elect to himself. That's in Matthew 24. Paul says the day of punishment for the wicked is the day that he comes to bring relief to the suffering of his saints. That's Thessalonians. What's more, the punishment of the wicked is even on behalf of the church, repaying not only their sin against the Lord, but how they have oppressed his people. Like Jesus telling Paul that he was persecuting him when Paul thought he was persecuting the church. Isaiah tells us that the enemies of God's people declare themselves to be the enemies of Jesus. And Calvin says this, hence we see God's infinite love towards us, who loves us so ardently that he bears hostility to our enemies and declares that he will render recompense to them. So strong is his affection for his little flock, that he sets a higher value on them than on the whole world. You cannot understand the salvation of Jesus, even his love for his people, until you have reckoned with his vengeance. We see this in our passage this morning. After the conquering Messiah rushes through the land, he comes to Zion. He is the same Messiah. He is still Christ, the conqueror. But when he arrives at Zion, that does not mean vengeance, but it means redemption. Verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. This is our third point this morning. Jesus, the redeemer, comes to Zion. It should astound us that after he has dealt perfect blows of vengeance to his enemies for all their sin, Jesus can arrive in Zion where justice was outlawed, where children were sacrificed, where the poor were oppressed, and come not as a destroyer, but as a redeemer and savior. But wait! Isaiah reminds us who Zion is. It is in Jerusalem that these sins have taken place, but Zion is not the earthly population of Jerusalem. Zion here, in verse 20, is all of God's people, but only God's people who turn from their sin and repent. This is why this song comes in response to the song of repentance we heard last week. Because these promises are those for them, not who have never sinned, but who did repent of their sin and put their trust in Christ's salvation from it. There is no hope from the Messiah without rejecting sin. Because to reject sin is to reject being an enemy of God, an enemy of the Messiah. To embrace sin is to say, yes, I am his enemy. I am the enemy of the Messiah. And I am the enemy of his people, the church of Zion. So for Isaiah to say Jesus comes to redeem all of Zion is simply for him to say he comes to redeem those who repent of their sin and trust in him as their redeemer. We have already seen that these are the citizens of the eternal kingdom of Zion. Isaiah even gives us a hint that this can mean hope for the people among the nations. Among those nations where Jesus was bringing vengeance, verse 19 says, The result of his conquest will be that they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. On the one hand, we can read this as the terrified response of a conquered enemy who now trembles before the power of the Lord who has conquered them. But on the other hand, we know that the fear of the Lord and the recognition of his glory is true for those who then put their trust in him. Isaiah hints that they will recognize this, not just at the east, but at the rising of the sun, at the dawning of the kingdom of the Messiah. So in this verse, there is a hope for people of all nations who have recognized and feared the Lord that they can repent of their sins and turn to him and join with Zion who calls him redeemer. So even as Isaiah is looking forward to the total defeat of all of those enemies who oppressed God's people, he is holding out hope for some of those enemies to repent and trust in Jesus, just as he holds out hope for those sinful sons of Judah that they can repent and be saved. We see all the more how connected God's acts of death vengeance and salvation are. That it is in the same moment that God's enemies are crushed, that some of his enemies turn to him and repent and are saved. So often people accuse God of being two-faced. They try and argue that the father and the son are very different in their personalities or that there's somehow a different God with different behavior in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But here in the Old Testament in Isaiah, we meet Jesus And we see God's vengeance and God's redemption together. All through scripture, we see them together. Think of the Passover, the conquest of Canaan, even the way that the exile in Babylon ultimately cast wicked people out of the promised land while bringing others to repentance whom God would bring back to Jerusalem. Again and again, we can see how God's judgment and his salvation are inseparable just as justice and mercy are not different sides of God, but perfectly existing within his perfect single character. This is most clearly displayed when we look at Jesus' death and resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus was the greatest act of conquering in history. The glorious second coming of Jesus, when he will be displayed as a conqueror, rests on what happened on the old rugged cross. On the cross, justice and mercy came together perfectly as the wrath of God was poured out on Christ for the salvation of many. Even this was an act of conquering. It was there that Jesus took on death. It was there that Satan's plans were totally and finally crushed, that the nations were taken from his hands so that the gospel could bring in people from all the nations to whom it was about to explode out. The cross was the silencing of any enemy of God's people who would say that they were too weak and wicked and sinful to be saved from their enemies. And if for a moment... It seemed to those weak disciples like Jesus had not conquered on the cross. It was only because he had gone in to take on the beast from the inside. Emerging out of death like a conquering hero coming out of battle. And this sin-bearing sacrifice of Jesus, his glorious resurrection, that is the qualification for all of the conquering that would take place after that unto the final judgment of the world. That is a central theme in Revelation, that it is the lamb, the slain sacrifice, who is alone worthy to bring about God's conquering. So we can see that the conquest of God, even the conquering of the Messiah, does not only look forward to a final event Isaiah's hint here that some of the conquered foes will also turn to the Lord tells us he's not just looking forward to the completion of the conquest at the last judgment. From the cross to the second coming, Jesus wields the power to conquer, even as he continues to save more and more people into his kingdom. Repeatedly, the word of God is portrayed as a weapon. As a sword. And in Revelation, we saw that that sword comes out of the mouth of Jesus and it comes out to conquer the enemies of God. In the preaching of the word, the church grows and fills the earth, not only seeing Christ's power to save, but also his power to bring vengeance. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, wherever the church gathers, wherever we pray, Your kingdom come and your will be done, we see the forces of darkness put on their back foot. We see the enemies of God's people silenced. We see some of God's enemies even repenting, retreating from the nations of darkness to become his people. That's the conquering of Jesus. And that is a conquering that you are invited to participate in. This is why Paul tells us that we ourselves are invited to put on the armor of the conquering Messiah. Turn to Ephesians 6, verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 19. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. How are we entitled to wear the armor that Jesus puts on in Isaiah? Paul tells us that we can put on this armor of God because our strength is the strength of the Lord. So while Isaiah's armor tells us about qualities Jesus has in and of itself, we see that as servants of Christ united to him, his armor is put on by us. It is still his power to save, it is still his conquering, but he works this power by his spirit even in us who follow him into battle. By putting on that armor, by being strengthened with his power, we are not just invited to defend ourselves against the devil, but to participate in the forward march of Jesus conquering. Paul tells his readers, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, that is our weapon. That is the active power of the Spirit that we have with us. Paul desires that we wield this in prayer, in praying for him, that he would have words and boldness to proclaim the gospel. That is how we conquer with the power of Jesus, praying and preaching and proclaiming the good promises of the gospel. We have the same confident attitude of conquering today, even as we anticipate the final vengeance of Jesus. We go out into the world now with that same conquering hope. Isaiah wanted his readers to have that same confidence in Jesus. And so he assures them that they do not just have future promises, but the present power of the spirit through the Messiah. Verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you. And my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Our final point is through Jesus, the spirit and the word will never depart from God's people. Helpful Hebrew scholars will note that although God says, this is my covenant with them, in the next clause, he says, my spirit is upon you and that you is singular. Not my spirit is upon y'all but my spirit is upon you, the Messiah. So the covenant is with all of Zion, but the promises are theirs because of the Messiah. At this point in Isaiah, we know that's not a contradiction because we have often seen the role of the Messiah is to stand in the place of God's people, accomplish what they couldn't so that God's promises would surely be kept to them through him. Through Jesus, we all enjoy God's covenant and being a part of his covenant people. Because all who are children of Abraham are so by faith in Jesus. Including Abraham, whose faith was in the promises that God fulfilled in Jesus, even though Jesus was not yet known. Paul quotes this passage in Romans 11 as an assurance that God never forgets his promises to his people. If God's promises rest upon Christ, then you can be assured both by the trustworthiness of the Father and the power and accomplishment of the Son that there is no way that God's promises to save you and hold you will not come true. But this covenant doesn't just say that God's people will be saved, but that they will, through Christ, always have the Spirit and the Word, that those will never depart from God's people from generation to generation. This is also our confidence that God's people will not simply persevere, but conquer. When the word and the spirit are together, God is speaking of his writing and his preservation and his proclamation of the scriptures. His spirit empowered word, just as he promised, it has never departed from God's people. We do not need anything new. The word has never left and the spirit has never failed to empower it we still enjoy the Spirit's power whenever these scriptures are read and preached and proclaimed. This is why both the Holy Spirit and the Word of God together are characterized by the authors of Scripture as a sword. Brothers and sisters, the promise that the Spirit and the Word will never depart from God's people is your confidence when you are scared of the kingdoms of this world. You don't need to worry that Jesus' mission is somehow failing or even going through a rough patch, that the conquering has been stalled, that we need to regroup and figure out how we can move forward. We don't need to worry that the conqueror who moves like a rushing river and a gale wind has somehow been stopped in his tracks. As he keeps moving, he continues to empower the word of God with the spirit of God so that we are always conquerors even more than conquerors, as Paul says, through Jesus Christ. We also do not need to worry if the church needs to regroup and somehow change its tactics or try something new to see if it might conquer more effectively, to see if it can get the job done in a better way. We do not need plausible words, performative tactics, church growth strategies Desperate attempts to appeal to the world. We have the gifts of God to conquer the world that we have always had. Paul tells the Corinthians, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. We still have that message from Paul and the other authors of scripture. We have that same weapon that the church has had since God gave his word to them. We have the same spirit that has always empowered God's people. We have the great commission The rallying cry of our conqueror that all authority in heaven and earth is his now. And he is with us wherever we go, forever and ever. So go and make disciples of every nation. Break down the kingdoms that once belonged to sin and Satan. Baptize them, teacher, conquer them for Christ. Verse 19, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. This is our confidence that we are enjoying the fulfillment of these promises, which will one day be finally, visibly, powerfully fulfilled at the return of Jesus. We are participating in the declaration of the angel in Revelation 11. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So friends... There is nothing more terrifying in this world than being an enemy of Jesus. He has conquered. He is conquering and he will conquer and he will reign forever and ever. To try and pursue your own way and your own gain instead of submitting to him is like doing battle against a hurricane. Do not strive to make yourself a part of his army. Repent. And see the conqueror who brings vengeance come to you as redeemer, as a citizen of his eternal kingdom. Repent and trust in Jesus, who bore the full wrath of vengeance for those who would trust in him, and rose again that their place in his kingdom forever would be secure. And church, you are more than conquerors. When we repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, we were not just freed from being enemies of Christ, but we were enlisted into a conquering army. We have the word of God. We have the power of his spirit. We have his armor on. Go out boldly. Be confident. Follow Jesus into battle. Proclaim the gospel of our redeemer and king with boldness. Citizens of Zion, our kingdom will surely last forever. Our kingdom, king will surely last reign forever let's pray heavenly father thank you so much that we have a conquering king in jesus father i pray that hearing about his vengeance would make us rightly fearful but that those here would not be the ones who fear unto despair as a conquered enemy of god but would fear unto repentance and faith in him may we all know christ not as the bringer of vengeance against our sin but as our redeemer Even as we look to the cross where the conqueror bore the full pain of vengeance on behalf of those who the Father had given to him. Father, may we trust in Jesus and then may we be confident in him with the gifts that his church has always held that he has given to us, that we might follow our hero out, conquering, ever confident, ever secure in him and in his mission and in his power until our faith becomes sight until Christ returns in a glorious uh, display of his conquering majesty, and we see visibly the everlasting kingdom of Jesus as the heavens and earth are made new, and we rest in the victory once for all completed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.